Okay, so let's just hypothetically assume that your favorite football team lost this weekend. I'm just, this is hypothetical. So all week, what sustained you through the mundane and the blah of the week was looking forward to the excitement of your favorite football team, right? And that's why it's so crushing when they lose, hypothetically. And and so what is it that is anchoring your soul? What is your hope that is sustaining you through the difficult things you face this week? In that case, it's, it's football. Now, obviously, there are anchors that are going to hold and anchors that aren't going to hold, anchors that are trustworthy, anchors that are not trustworthy. And we found out this weekend, if you put your faith in a football team, it's likely not to hold at times. Today, the author is going to really offer us the hope that actually will hold, an anchor that will hold through the worst of times, through the length of a lifetime. But before we go there, stop and take a minute to think about what is it that anchors you. Now, obviously, there's, there's the mundane of life that there's nothing wrong with looking forward to the weekend. But what about the real, real times? What, when things really are tough, when, when crisis happens or hits and challenges happen, and we go through those seasons of challenges, storms, winds are blowing, currents are pulling you downstream, and you're, you're fighting with everything you've got to keep swimming upstream. What is it that's going to hold you and keep you from drifting? I know the Sunday school answer, but what is it, what is your anchor? I mean, where do you find your hope? What is it that keeps you going and pressing on through the the seasons of dullness as he's been, the author of Hebrews has been writing. He says, listen, in the couple weeks ago, he called it dullness of hearing those times where you, you don't even hear God. You don't even recognize his voice. Or maybe it's a sluggishness, which is more an idea of just, I don't feel like doing what I know I need to do. A a spiritual laziness, a physical, mental, emotional, tired, lazy, indifferent. All along that spectrum is what the writer's been saying is, is, hey, in in chapter 5, he was about to go deep with Jesus. He was about to say, let me explain some deep concepts about the high priest, order of Melchizedek. And then he stops and goes, you know what? You guys aren't ready for this. This is meat. You're, you're still on the milk. And instead of pressing on the maturity, you, I got to feed you milk. And we got to talk about the elementary things of Christ. He says, like, come on now. Let's do this. Let's press on to the deeper things of Christ. And that's what we've been the last few weeks. He's been saying, but I know you're going to press on through this dullness. I know you're going to press on through this apathetic, lukewarm indifferent attitude that I see in you right now, this immaturity, this disobedience, this lack of faithfulness, because he said last week, because I know you're not one of those who, uh, quote unquote, fallen away. And he explains that that fallen away is not that you lose salvation, but that you can show early signs of it, but ultimately reject Christ. And that's what we saw, he said, through the parable of of, of Luke 8, the parable of soils, he explained, you know, there are some people who seem like they're all into Christ, but then later reject Christ. And he says, you're not one of those. You're just going through a difficult season. Now, come on, let's, let's get out of this. Let's press on. And now he starts to give us the idea of how to press on. It, it includes this idea of knowing the, the hope the, the, that anchors your soul. So what is the hope that anchors you? 
What is that thing that you say, okay, I'm going to get through this. I'm going, this is going to anchor my soul. And, and here today in Hebrews, we're going to see what the author suggests as the hope that anchors the soul. And he, let me just kind of preview it with a couple of verses that he's going to look at. We're listening to what he says in the second part of verse 18. He says, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. And then in verse 19, he says, this hope that we have as an anchor of the soul. So what is the hope that anchors our soul through the difficult seasons of this life? Well, he's going to show us in these verses. So let's read verses 6, 13 through 20. 6, verses 13 through 20, the writer of Hebrews says this. He says, For when God made the promise to Abraham... Let me stop and let me review something. In verse 12, let's begin with that. He said, this is where he ended last week. He says, I don't want you to be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises and then he continues for when God made the promise to Abraham since he could swear by no one greater he swore by himself saying I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you and so having patiently waited he Abraham obtained the promise for men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation it's an end of every dispute in the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we need your help this morning, and we ask that you would take these words, make them clear, give us understanding with our minds, give us understanding with our hearts that we might hold fast to the anchor that is sure and steadfast, the anchor of our soul. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so in these verses, the author is saying, all right, look, there is an anchor that will anchor your soul through any storm of life. And he says, now let me illustrate what I'm talking about. So the first thing we see is an illustration. He's going to illustrate it with the life of Abraham. Listen to what he says in verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. So God said to Abraham, I swear by my own name. Because there's no one greater to swear by for God. Saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so... Having patiently waited, that's the description of Abraham, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained that promise. And so the author is saying, listen, I want you to be like Abraham. I want to illustrate my point today by describing what happened with Abraham. Now, what happened to Abraham? This is coming from Genesis chapter 22. It's called Abraham's test. It's where this crazy situation in which God tells Abraham to sacrifice his son. And we go, do what? What kind of crazy God does that? Well, the author tells us in this Genesis 22 account, before you go crazy, 
Understand, this is a test. This is only a test. God would not ask you to sacrifice your son. So he tells him up front, this was only a test of Abraham. And then he tells Abraham, I want you to sacrifice Isaac. And listen to what, what we, uh, all Abraham knew was what God told him to do. And here's what God said. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So suddenly Abraham is thrusted in the greatest, sacrifice, the greatest storm of his life, the greatest crisis imaginable. If any of you have ever, and I know some of you have struggled with infertility, and you prayed, and some of you are still waiting and asking, some of you had that, the great miracle blessing of God providing a child, imagine how you cherish that child. That's exactly what was going on with Abraham and Isaac. Abraham and Sarah, they were told, you can't have children. All their life, they tried to have children. They could not have children. Now they're well into their age, well beyond childbearing years, and God comes to them and says, you're going to have a child. In fact, you're going to have children who have children who have children. They're going to form a nation of people. And they laughed. They're like, are you kidding me? This is crazy. But ultimately, they trusted God. They believed God's promise. And then they had the miracle child. They had Isaac. And here is Isaac. Isaac it's not just a miracle of the fact that they had a child when, when there was no way they could have children. But now they have a child who is the center of all of God's blessings. All of God's blessings of restoration and rescue, of restoring all that has gone wrong because of the fall. God says, I'm going to do it through Abraham's child. And so that's Isaac. So in a very real sense of the world, if something happens to Isaac, the world will literally come to an end. God will not be able to accomplish his, his promises and his purposes if anything happens to this precious child. And so this is a massive crisis, greater crisis than any of us could ever imagine. And God says to Abraham about Isaac, that miracle child, that child of promise, that child on whom all the promises of God hinge, God says, kill him, sacrifice him. This is a test, but he says to Abraham, Abraham doesn't know. He's like, are you serious? And so what do we see Abraham do? What, what response does Abraham have? Well, we continue to read in Genesis 22, verses 9 through 12. It says, Then they came to the place of which God had told him, they being Abraham and his son Isaac. He's got the sticks. He's got the fire. He's got the knife. He's got Isaac. And they're walking. And it says, They came to the place which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there. He arranged the wood and he bound his son. Can you imagine the scene? Binding his son, picking him up in his arms, the questions in his son's eyes. And he lays Isaac on the altar on top of the wood. Then with, I'm sure, extraordinary pain and anguish, he raised, it says Abraham stretched out his hand. He took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. And he says, here I am. And the angel said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him, for now I know that you fear God. How? Since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So Abraham persevered. Abraham 
pressed on in obedience. Abraham, in the middle of the worst crisis imaginable of his life, the greatest storm, the greatest uncertainty, I'm sure the biggest questions he's ever had about God, about his promises, about how can this be a good, loving, faithful God when this is going on. In the midst of all that uncertainty, all those storms, all the crises, Abraham obeyed. Obeyed a command that that is, had to be the hardest command imaginable. Abraham was faithful. He obeyed. He persevered. He pressed on. He did everything the writer of Hebrews wants us to do when we are in storms and crises or, or dullness or indifference or lukewarm or immaturity or disobedience or faithlessness or laziness or whatever words you want to say. When you're in the middle of that crisis, he's saying, I want you to understand. I want you to be like Abraham who pressed on, who obeyed even when nothing made sense. Now, what did we learn from Abraham? How did he do it? What was the secret? What was anchoring Abraham's soul in the midst of this struggle, this storm? It says in 22.8, Abraham, or it says, God will provide for himself. This is what Abraham said as he's going through the scene, as he's going to the mountain. Here's what comes out of his mouth, revealing what's in his heart. He says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. In verse 14, Abraham called the place where that happened. He said he called it the name of that place, the Lord will provide. And so Abraham, going through these motions, wasn't just sitting there thinking, well, I've got to figure this all out. He knew God. He knew God's faithfulness. He knew God's goodness. He knew God's promises. He knew God's love. He knew his compassion. He knew his character. He knew God. He knew him intimately and personally. He knew every aspect of his being, his personality. He understood who he was dealing with. In fact, Hebrews tells us later in 11, in chapter 11, Abraham thought God was going to raise Isaac from the dead. He knew God was going to deliver on his promises. His knowledge of God's character, his faithfulness, his love, his kindness, his patience, his understanding. He said, I'm going to be all right. God's going to be faithful. He is so faithful that I can be faithful. He says, I can sacrifice my son. I don't know how it's going to work. Maybe he's going to raise him from the dead. But I know one thing. This place will be called the Lord will provide. So his understanding of the nature and character of God as the one who provides, the one who is faithful, the one who does what he says, he said, that's what enabled him to press on in the midst of the difficulties. That's what enabled his obedience. That was the fuel of his obedience. It wasn't that he had all the answers. He certainly didn't have the answers. It wasn't that he was so great in himself. It was that he knew God was great. And this tells us that when we're going through these struggles, what we tend to do is internalize and think about ourselves too much. And am I strong enough? Am I good enough? Help me be better. Help me. And it's really the biblical picture is get your eyes off yourself and look at God. Look how awesome God is. Look how faithful God is. Look how gracious God is. Look how sovereign he is. But he's sovereign and he's good and loving and kind and merciful and gracious and long-suffering. That's the kind of God we're dealing with. And that's what was the hope that anchored Abraham's soul. That's what fueled his obedience was he had an extraordinary confidence in God's faithfulness. Abraham is a man of faith, but we make the mistake if we think it's because he was just so good at having faith. 
Abraham's faith is a model for us because it's a confidence in the faithfulness of God. And that's what should anchor our souls. And that's what we see illustrated in the life of Abraham. He considered him who promised, he considered him faithful who had promised. And so Abraham and Sarah knew God, knew God's promises, and knew God was faithful. And that's what fueled them to be able to follow through on God's will for their lives. So that's the illustration for us to follow. But next we see the explanation of how this all makes sense to us. He says in verse 16 through 18, For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. It settles it. Well, in the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of His purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. So in these verses, the author explains God's faithfulness with the analogy of legal contracts that we have. To make his point, he says that when, when humans make a contract, they swear and they take an oath by a higher power, and, and that's what ensures that you can, the one receiving the promises will get what's promised. We go to court, and we're making a testimony, and we swear, and it says, do you promise to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God? We're swearing by the name of God that we, what we're saying, you can take me at my character, that it's a true witness, but if that's not enough, so help me God. I swear to God. That, and that comes from the idea of being accountable to God for what's being said. That The person is saying, look, if I'm lying, may I deal with God? May God deal with me if I'm lying? In fact, Abraham in Genesis was making a contract or a covenant with some people in the surrounding nations. And he says to them, uh, he tells them that make, he made them swear in Genesis 21, 23. He said, now therefore, swear to me here by God that you will not deal falsely with me. So the idea is appealing to a higher power, appealing to the one God of the universe and saying, I'm appealing to God and I'm swearing on oath that what I'm saying is true. It's, it's appealing to someone to guarantee the truthfulness of the promise. It's kind of like when someone goes to the bank to borrow money and their balance sheet and financial, their income statement is not all that strong. And they're going to the banker and saying, listen, I need, to, I need this massive project I want to do, and I want to borrow the money, and I promise you I'm going to pay it back. And they're like, that's great, but you need a guarantor. You need someone. You need Daddy Warbucks. Let him come to the bank, and he'll sign. And if he signs, I, I trust you. I know you're going to pay it. Well, really, they don't really care. They know you're not going to pay it. They're going to can't go to Daddy Warbucks, and he's going to pay it. So the promise is only good as the, the person backing the promise. And that's what we're seeing in scriptures. He's saying, listen, I want you to understand the person backing these promises is the one you're all swearing by. It's God himself who can swear by no one greater than himself. And he, he, is, he has pledged it with an oath. He is the guarantor. He is the highest power. He, he does not lie. His purposes do not change. He's not going to change his mind. He's not going to let you down. He's not going to be deceptive. He is faithful. In fact, you see all through the scriptures, he's not changing. 
That's why when we read the scriptures, it's so helpful in times of, of seasons of difficulty because we see this, our eyes are taken off of ourselves and taken off of our struggles and they're lifted up to see there's a bigger plan going on here. There's a God whose purposes, he promised to Abraham that he will rescue and he will restore and he will do that through the seed of Abraham. And he re- he's reminded them of that promise over and over and over and over and over. This not a secret what God's doing. And he's saying, I'm not going to change. I'm not going to lie. I'm going to be faithful. Just like I was faithful for Abraham. Now imagine, to illustrate the point of the promise is only good as the one who makes the promise. Imagine a dad comes to the son, his son before his son heads off to the school bus and says, hey, after you get home from school, I'm going to get home a couple later, so I'll go to work, I'll come home, and we're going to go to the ball game. Big game in town, and we're going to, I'm going to take you to the game, and that kid is just on cloud nine all day long. He's bragging to his friends. He gets a bad report card. I don't care. I'm going to the ball game. It doesn't matter what's going on in his life. Maybe some friend hurt his feelings. It doesn't matter. The promise that his dad made him is going to sustain him through that day come anything that happens. So he comes home from school, and he's just sitting there waiting for dad to come in the door. Dad doesn't show up. Some excuse, something happens, whatever. He doesn't show up. Late at night, he comes home, dad comes home, the son's already asleep. Next morning, he says, son, listen, I am so sorry that happened. We're going today. We're going to go tonight when I get home from work. And that kid's just a little less excited, a little less certain about the promise. And so through the day, yeah, I mean, maybe this time, it's early in the season, he's like, okay, this is good. We're going to the game tonight. Dad doesn't show. Next morning, dad comes up, says, son, I'm so sorry. It's just been a bad week tomorrow. He's like, yeah, whatever. And there's no benefit. The promise is only as good as the faithfulness of the one making the promise. And what he's saying is, God is your heavenly father, and he is absolutely faithful. He will not miss the appointment. He will not change his mind. He is perfect He is unchanging, he is faithful, he is loving, he is good. He's everything you want to be as a dad. He's perfect. And so he's saying, you can take it to the bank. When God makes a promise, he's going to keep the promise. Just like anyone else, he's made an oath, but he's made an oath by his own name, and his his promises and his purposes are unchanging. We've seen the illustration the explanation, and finally we get the application. In verses 19 through 20, the author applies all this to us. He says in verse 19, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. So here the author takes all that he's been saying He's illustrated it with Abraham. He's explained it. And now he's saying, now this is for those who have taken refuge in God's promises concerning Jesus. Verse 19, when he says, this hope we have as an anchor, the author includes himself in the group. He's saying, listen, we have this as an anchor. We're saying we, we know he including himself. Who is the we who have this as an anchor? 
In verse 18, he says it's those who have taken refuge. In verse 17, he says they are heirs of promise. Now, what does it mean to take refuge in something? He's been using the marine analogies of not drifting and of anchor. Well, if you've ever been on the water and a storm's coming, you realize really quick, I have got to take refuge. I've got to go get into a safe place because it is getting scary out here. Taking refuge is placing your hopes and your security in that, that place, that person. And so those who take refuge in the promises of God, they see the storms of the wrath of God coming and they know they're guilty and they know they deserve the wrath of God, but they're only only place of refuge, refuge is to hide in Christ, who is the great high priest whom God has promised. If you're in Christ, you're safe. If you're trusting in the blood of Christ, you're good. You are covered by the blood of Christ. He's the great high priest. He is the perfect sacrifice. He covers your sin, and so you're good. Those who take refuge in Christ become heirs of the promises of God concerning Christ. If Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises, all the spiritual blessings of the heavenly places are hidden in Christ, then when you take refuge in Christ by faith, you are a benefactor of all those promises promises. Paul said that in Galatians. He told us in Galatians chapter 3 verse 29, if any one of you belongs to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. And so he says, listen, we, all of us who have taken refuge in Christ as the great high priest, we have him and the promises of God and the faithfulness of God regarding Christ as the anchor that holds us and enables us to press on through the difficult seasons of life. And in that final application of this anchor, he describes it with three ways. First of all, he says it's an anchor that's sure and steadfast. Sure and steadfast anchors are very important. If you need an anchor to hold you, you want it to be sure and steadfast. Now, that we have a family, a group of friends that, that 12 families from long time ago, we've been friends for a long time, and even if we only see them once a year, it's those, that group that you always just feel like you've never missed a day. We've watched our kids grow up together. We vacation together. And we're just an interesting crew. And we, we once a year, we'll, or we used to, sadly, we need to get it back going again, we would, we would rent a, a lake house in Arkansas at a lake. And there was 12 couples. I can't tell you how many kids. It was like 400 people. We're all piling in on the lake. And we would rent this, this party barge that had a hard top, and every kid had two blow-up floaties. Every parent had four blow-up floaties, and we looked like Sanford and Son. I mean, we would load them all up, bungee cord them, and we would go trucking out to a place where we would anchor the, the, the party barge, anchor it where a boat's coming by, wouldn't get too close, and chop us up in their motor. And so it was very important that that anchor holds for us to be able to enjoy. Well, the first year, I was in charge of the party boat because I didn't own a boat, so that was the one I got to be in charge of with 400 kids and 500 adults is what it felt like, and they're all floating around, and I'm like, if I start this motor, I'm sure there's going to be someone that gets hurt. But the, the anchor was this little bitty anchor. And so I'm constantly drifting towards the island or I'm constantly drifting out into the, the, the lane where the boats are supposed to go. It was a nightmare. And so now that I own my own little ski boat, I have the largest anchor known to man. It is this big, and you, it flips out, and it has like teeth that dig in, and it is sure, and it is steadfast. I mean, it is the kind where when you throw it out, when, when the current pulls you, it digs in deep. It goes deep into the mud. It, you're not going anywhere. 
And it is the kind that when the waves of the storms come and the wind's blowing, you're steady. You're okay. You're not constantly looking to see if you're drifting away and drifting into danger. You're confident. And on a beautiful day, you can enjoy it. You can sit out and you can float in the waters. You can enjoy God's creation. And it makes a difference if your anchor holds. The author is saying that Christ is the anchor that holds. He is sound. He is steady. He is sure. He's going to get you through this. So so he's sound and sure, steady, but he says he's the, the anchor is the veil, is the one that goes through the veil as our forerunner. So now we know what he's talking about because he's been talking about Jesus Christ as the great high priest. He said he's the one that ascended through the heavens. He came as the, the Son of God, the perfect man, perfect, he's the God-man. He gave himself on the cross as a sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice. He rose from the grave and he ascended into the heavens and he went through the veil, the heavenly tabernacle. He went through the veil into the Holy of Holies, the place where the priest went once a year to offer this, the, the blood of the sacrifice to God. It says Jesus did that and he did it as our forerunner. He did it for us as our pioneer. He did it as our forerunner. And so I can't help but think of this beautiful picture of God in this mountain climbing gear. He's got this gear on and he's got this sure rope and he clamps it on and then he throws it down and he clamps it on to me. And then he goes to the cross and he dies, he's buried, he rose again, he ascends through the heavens, he goes through the veil into the Holy of Holies at the throne room of God and he's up there offering himself, his blood, and then he sits down because it's done and it's settled. He sits on the throne and he wraps that rope around the throne and he throws it down and I'm hooked to it. And it doesn't matter what happens in life, it doesn't matter what currents, it doesn't matter what storm, It doesn't matter. He's up there and he's pulling me. And he's pulling me to himself throughout my lifetime. Sometimes I'm sure I'm heavier than others. And he's going, you need to quit fighting. And he pulls me and he pulls me. And no matter what happens, I know I'm good. And it's not because I'm holding on tight. It's because he has hooked himself onto me. And he is faithful. And he is sure. And it will happen. I will enter through the veil. And I will stand or probably kneel at the foot of the king. And I will worship him no matter what happens in this lifetime. Are you hooked to that anchor? Because that's the only anchor that will get you through this life. He's the one that pulls you where he is. He's the one that is faithful. He's the one that is sure and steadfast. You can take it to the bank. If you've hooked to Jesus... You're going to be with him at the throne one day. Sometimes it's hard. Sometimes we think, when is he going to do this? When are we going to make it through all this? And 2 Peter 3.18 addresses that. Listen to what he says. Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years. And a thousand years is like one day. The Lord is not slow about keeping his promise. As some would count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. He wants all to to hook on to Jesus. But the day of the Lord will come, and it'll come like a thief in the night, 
in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat where his wrath will come and incinerate this earth and the earth and its works will be burned up. And since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening that coming of that day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So when when this life and you look around you and you don't see righteousness dwelling, bank on it. It's coming. And sometimes that's all you got in the middle of your storm is you know God is faithful. It may seem like he's delayed, but he is faithful. You will get through this. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that everyone here today sees that the faithfulness of God concerning Jesus Christ is the only hope that anchors the soul. That when we lose loved ones, He is our anchor. When we struggle with disease, He is the anchor. When we get tired and frustrated and discouraged, He is our anchor. The harder we pull, the harder this life pulls us, He digs in deeper and deeper, and He has us anchored to the throne of God as our forerunner. He went into the heavens, through the veil, into the Holy of Holies, but only for those who are anchored to Jesus, the great high priest. Lord, encourage everyone here. Encourage those who are hurting and struggling to know the goodness, the faithfulness of God, that he has good in store for them, and that he will bring all of his promises about. Lord, those who have never looked on to Jesus by faith, I pray that you will bring faith this morning. Help us all to trust in Jesus alone. Maybe some are here this morning who haven't trusted Jesus because they've doubted God's goodness, because they hadn't understood the situation. Give them eyes to see the goodness of yourself. I pray that anything that they've hooked on to, they'll realize that it's not sure, it's not set steadfast, it's not certain, and it will slip, and they will crash against the rocks. I pray that we will live holy lives, not that we deny that life is difficult, but that in the midst of difficulties and storms, that there is a certain rest, a certain confidence that undergirds the pain, a certain assurance that undergirds the difficulty and the sorrow. So yeah, we grieve, but not as those who have no hope. 
Lord, the hope that we have is you and your faithfulness through Jesus Christ.